Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. Episode 94 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Chris Kirkbride. Yet another busy week for financial crime. They're all busy weeks, frankly. A range of stories across the whole of financial crime, sanctions, money laundering, bribery, and cyber attack news. In sanctions, there is a lot of focus on oil and Iran. In money laundering, a new economic crime agency in the UK focused on money laundering in the environmental context. On bribery, more allegations of public sector corruption. Lots to get into, so let's crack on. As usual, I've linked the main stories flagged in the podcast right there in the description. And we'll start, as we always do, with sanctions. Sanctions news starts in the US and enforcement action for breach of Iranian oil sanctions. I said oil was prominent. As the press release from the Office of Public Affairs at the DOJ, the Department of Justice, provides, in the Southern District of New York, seven defendants, including a leader, within Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and officers of the Turkish Energy Group are charged with terrorism, sanctions evasion, fraud and money laundering offences in connection with their trafficking and selling of Iranian oil to government-affiliated buyers in China, Russia and Syria in order to finance the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Group Corps. Additionally, the United States seized $108 million used as part of the defendant's scheme to fund the IRGC. In a related action in the District of Columbia, a Chinese woman and an Omani man are charged with sanctions evasion and money laundering offences in connection with the trafficking and selling of Iranian oil to Chinese government-owned refineries. Additionally, in the District of Columbia, a forfeiture complaint for the seizure of illicit Iranian oil was unsealed alleging that more than 500,000 barrels of Iranian fuel is forfeitable under terrorism laws as property that provides a source of funding to the IRGC. Linked to the press release from the Office of Public Affairs, which contains links to everything else, including the indictments, can be found in the podcast description. In addition to the activity in respect of Iranian oil sanctions, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, has also announced further sanctions on a procurement network which supplies materials and technology which is used in Iran's ballistic missile and unmanned aerial vehicle UAV programs, as well as sanctioning individuals from Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Electronic Command. That's the Cyber Electronic Command. That is understood to be behind a number of attacks on U.S. critical infrastructure, which I've discussed in previous episodes of the podcast. Links to both press releases can be found in the description. Now, sticking to the subject of sanctioned oil, only this time it's Russia's oil and not Iran's. You may remember that two weeks ago in episode 92 of the Financial Crime Weekly, I mentioned some research for the Center for research on energy and clean air, which found that since the imposition of the oil price cap on the 5th of December 2022, 46.4 billion euros of Russian oil has been transported on tankers using UK protection and indemnity insurance. 
Well, further research from the centre this week has, has identified that a loophole in the sanctions which enables countries which have not imposed sanctions on Russia to import oil then export those petroleum products to the UK and EU. It may be that the authorities look at this loophole unless it's all too convenient to have that. So they might necessarily employ the little Nelsonian knowledge that I see no ships. Link to the research is in the podcast description. Now one more story linked to Russian oil. In fact, there's another, there's another minor one from the UK, but there's another slightly more high-profile story linked to Russian oil, and that is that the High Anti-Corruption Court of Ukraine has approved the seizure of assets which belong to sanctioned Russian oligarch Eduard Kudenetov through a series of offshore companies. The company, LLC Naftova Compania Alliance Ukraine, is an oil trader, and the seizure is valued at around 500 million hervinias, which is around 10.5 million pounds. Now to the European Union, where first it's been announced that the bloc will have a symbolic mini-sanctions list on the 24th of February 2024, marking the two-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The list is believed to include around 200 individuals and entities linked to the invasion, including military personnel. We'll look out for that one. Secondly, Alisha Usmanov, the sanctioned Russian oligarch, has lost his attempt to remove his name from the bloc's designation list. His attempt is the latest in a series of failed attempts by designated individuals following Russia's invasion of Ukraine across a range of jurisdictions to challenge their designation. Now to the UK, some more amendments and back to oil again. Uh, so amendments to the UK sanctions regime have been offered this uh, issued this week by the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI. First, an amendment to an entry on the Russia sanctions regime respecting Oleg Alexandrovich Mashtalya, who has a range of roles linked to finance, and he remains subject to an asset, asset fees and uh, an asset freeze and trust services sanctions. Mashtalya is also sanctioned in other jurisdictions. Secondly, some licenses have been updated. First, the Syria Humanitarian Activity Licence has been extended by six months and will now expire on the 14th of August 2024 at 11.59pm. Further, the Permitted Payments to Insurance Companies UK Insurance Companies Licence has been amended, among other things, to allow such permitted payments as can be made for UK properties and UK vehicles. Insurance brokers may make all types of return payments to a designated person's frozen bank account, including payments due from successful claims. The definition of return payments has expanded itself to include other types of refunds. The reporting and record-keeping requirements also apply to insurance brokers, and those reporting must now report to HM Treasury within 10 working days. Finally, amendments have been made to the oil price cap license, extending it to the 18th of February 2024. Links to all these notices, the updated consolidated list, so you can have a look at that, and all updated licenses can be found in the podcast description. Staying in the UK, the European Affairs Committee, which is a parliamentary committee, it's actually a committee of the House of Lords, has published its report on the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on the UK-EU relationship. The report covers support for Ukraine, cooperation on sanctions, the scale of assets sanctioned 
as well as other matters. It also encourages the cooperation between the UK and the bloc to continue, which is fairly unsurprising. But it does caution, as many positives as there might be, it does caution that work remains to be done, especially around enforcement and third country evasion, which we've seen an awful lot on in recent weeks. It also talks about the unfreezing of assets for the reconstruction of Ukraine. The process is taking too long. It needs to be speeded up, according to this committee. The press release from the committee, as well as its fairly weighty report, can be found in the podcast description. And the final bit of news on sanctions this week. The High Court in London has been asked to determine whether disclosure obligations under the civil procedure rules, which are the rules which govern civil litigation in England and Wales, whether the disclosure obligations under the CPR, the civil procedure rules, has breached the Russia sanctions EU exit regulations 2019, since they might be regarded as the provision of financial services under regulation 28.1 and 28.3, brokering services under regulation 29.1, or insurance or reinsurance services under regulation 29A of the regulations. Well, Mr Justice Butcher found that disclosure would not breach any of those provisions of the regulations and that the relevant documentation should be disclosed for the claimant's aviation insurance litigation. In his view, at paragraphs 22 to 23 of the judgment, the quotes, making of disclosure pursuant to such an order does not constitute the provision of any service or services, but is instead obedience to an order of the court made for the purposes of the fair disposal of proceedings before it. On that basis, quotes, an order for disclosure of the documents gave rise to no question of breach of the regulations. Link to the judgment of the High Court is in the podcast description. Now, after that fairly weighty bit of sanctions news, we now move to look at this week's money laundering news. Starts in the United Kingdom, where the Environment Agency, which is a uh, non-departmental public body with a very wide remit with respect to the protection and enhancement of the environment in England and Wales, there's a separate body in Scotland, has announced the creation of an economic crime unit to, quote, boost its efforts to tackle money laundering and carry out financial investigations in the waste sector. The new unit builds on the work of the then Environment Agency Financial Investigations Team, which has had significant success in seizing money and assets. Working with partners across law enforcement, the EA, the Environment Agency, has now expanded this team into the Economic Crime Unit. Link to the Environment Agency's press release is in the podcast description. Now, if we stay in the UK, we find that His Majesty's Revenue and Customs has issued an update to its high-value dealer guidance for money laundering supervision. The amendments take account of amendments and updates to the Money Laundering Regulations 2017, which have been made recently. A high-value dealer is the description used for businesses and sole traders who make or receive cash payments of €10,000 or more in exchange for goods. Link to the updated guidance is in the podcast description. In other news from the UK, the National Crime Agency has published its SARS reporter booklet for February 2024. It's the usual mix of case studies. And there's also a bit of a focus on fraud. The link to it is in the podcast description. 
in the US. The Department of Justice has charged three individuals with running a Hawala scheme. Bahanad al-Zubadi, Shakir Saleh Mohammed Hota and Abdul Qadir Nouri Hamza are charged with, quotes, conspiring to operate an unlicensed money-transmitting business that was responsible for illicitly moving more than 65 million U.S. dollars between the United States and countries in the Middle East, including Yemen, Turkey, Iraq, the United Arab Emirates and Jordan. Press release is in the podcast description. Now, we'll stay in the US, and this time it's the Financial Crime Enforcement Network, or FinCEN as it is known. It's proposed a new rule to deal with money laundering and to promote transparency in the residential real estate market. Quotes, the proposed rule will require certain professionals involved in real estate closings and settlements to report information to FinCEN about non-financed transfers of residential real estate to legal entities or trusts. FinCEN's proposal is tailored to target residential real estate transfers considered to be high risk for money laundering while minimizing potential business burden and it would not require reporting of transfers made to individuals. In other news, the US Department of the Treasury has published its 2024 risk national risk assessments for money laundering, terrorist financing and proliferation financing. Quotes, the report detail recent significant updates to the U.S. anti-money laundering and countering financing of terrorism framework and explains changes to the illicit finance risk environment. These include the ongoing fentanyl, fentanyl, fentanyl crisis, that's easy for me to say, foreign and domestic terrorist attacks and related financing increased potency of ransomware attacks, the growth of professional services money laundering and continued digitization of payments and financial services. These assessments also address how significant threats to global peace and security have shaped the illicit finance risk environment in the United States. Links to both can be found in the podcast description. Now, the final bit of money laundering news this week takes us to the European Union. And we start with the European Securities and Markets Union. The Joint Board of Appeal of the European Supervisory Authorities, which is a communion, a grouping of three of the regulators, the EBA is one of them, the EIOPA is the other, and ESMA, or the European Securities and Market Authority, is the third. So they make up the European Supervisory Authorities. Well, it's unanimously dismissed an appeal brought by Dubai Commodities Clearing Corporation, the DCCC, against ESMA's decision to withdraw its recognition because of the European Commission's inclusion of the United Arab Emirates on its, high, on its list of high-risk third countries presenting strategic deficiencies in their anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism regime. The link to the press release on that and other documents related to the failed appeal can be found in the podcast description. Now we turn to a bit of bribery and corruption. This week's bribery and corruption news is quite limited. There's not a great deal of it. But actually, what there is, is another interesting story about alleged corruption in public office from the US. We've covered a few of these stories in recent weeks where somebody in some form of public, official public capacity in the US has become involved or concerned in corrupt or other kinds of payments. 
Well, this time we're looking at, it's an astonishing story given the number of people involved, but it relates to the charging of 70 current and former employees of the New York City Housing Authority, the NYCHA, who, the unsealed indictment alleges, quotes, use their positions of public trust and responsibility to pocket bribes in exchange for doing out no bid sorry doling out no bid contracts i knew i'd say doling incorrectly indeed such is the scale of the alleged bribery and corruption the commission the commissioner of the new york city department of investigation has called for quote significant reforms to nycha's no bid contracting process which doi that's the department of investigation has recommended and the nycha has already accepted link to the doj press release is in the podcast description. I'll certainly keep an eye on that one. The other bit of bribery and corruption news this week is a a direction to some research from Spotlight on Corruption, which I've featured several times before. It highlights this time the failure of regulators to hold senior executives to account for financial crimes committed. Of the range of findings, the report finds that the Competition and Markets Authority, the CMA, failed to prosecute any board-level senior executives in large firms following 11 prosecutions. The Serious Fraud Office has achieved just two convictions following 20 corporate enforcement actions, and just one regulatory action was taken by the Financial Conduct Authority against an individual following 17 fines on banks worth a total of £777 million. Those, that was for money laundering. It's an interesting read. It's not a terribly long read. Certainly worth going into. Uh, so the press release is in the podcast description and the report is also there. Now, a little bit on market abuse. The ESMA comes back up again. We've mentioned ESMA in the episode already. We'll start, though, with a story which we featured in episode 87 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast where we reported that two brothers had been put on trial accused of fraud and insider dealing in a prosecution brought by the Financial Conduct Authority. Well, this week is a bit of an update. Sohail Zina has been acquitted of all nine counts, but his brother, uh, former Goldman Sachs analyst Mohamed Zina, remains on trial. His trial continues. The FCA understandably made a brief statement about the acquittal, but did not comment further because his brother's trial was ongoing, so that stands to reason, really. Sticking with the Financial Conduct Authority, it's published Market Watch 76, which highlights the issue of flying and printing, quotes, and how firms can mitigate the risks of misleading the market by their staff engaging in these behaviours. Flying involves a firm communicating to its clients or other market participants via screen, instant message, voice or other method, that it has bids or offers when they are not supported by or sometimes not even derived from an order or a trader's actual instruction. Printing involves communicating by one of the above methods that a trade has been executed at a specified price and or size when no such trade has taken place. Such behaviour may breach various provisions of the law including Article 12.1.A1 of the UK Market Abuse Regulation and or sections 88, uh, sorry, 89 and 90 of the Financial Services Act 2012, which is about creating misleading impressions. It may also breach various sections of the Financial Conduct Authority's handbook. 
The link to the publication is in the podcast description. In other market abuse news, the European Securities and Markets Authority, or ESMA, which I've already name-checked today in this episode once, has issued a warning when making securities recommendations on social media. The risk is that market manipulation under the market abuse regulation framework might be committed. The warning is applicable to technical experts and those with an interest in financial investments, but the warning is also targeted at finfluencers, financial influencers, any of whom might also face some form of sanction. This is not the first time that finfluencers have come under regulatory scrutiny. In episode 53 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, now that was way back in April 2023, we highlighted how the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK was also warning finfluencers to for influencers involving themselves in matters which might be regarded as market interference. So if you are on social media, take care. The regulators have you in your in their sights. The ESMA press release and the link to the published warning can be found in the podcast description. Now, to a bit of other financial crime news before we do a look uh, do a bit of a roundup of the cyber attack news this week. First, His Majesty's Revenue and Customs has published that it has 35 potential corporate criminal offences, or CCO, live investigations for the facilitation of tax evasion under Part 3 of the uh, Criminal Finances Act 2017. Of that number, 11 are live CCO investigations, but no charging decision has been made, and a further 24 are under review. An additional 94 opportunities have been rejected. Press release is in the podcast description. The slightly more significant other financial crime news this week came in the form of the publication of the Financial Conduct Authority's annual fraud and financial crime report. As a flavour of what the report provides, the Financial Conduct Authority issued a record number of warnings last year up by over 20% from 1,882 in 2022 to 2,286 in 2023. Now, it's easy to say that the warning list is not widely read, but the report also indicates that between 2021 and 2022, the number of consumers accessing the warning list increased by over 10% to 27,544. There's also been a significant increase between 2022 and 2023 in the number of scam reports received by the Financial Conduct Authority, which rose from 35,308 to 42,148. While all this is interesting, all data is always interesting, I'm pleased to see consistent references throughout the report of the need to educate the public. I've said this so often, a significant aspect of preventing scams is the education of the public. Yes, by all means, prevent the scammers by going hard against them when they're identified. But it's important to prevent investments in scams by educating the population. It's what will lift them up. Anyway, to the report where the theme of educating the public is very clear, as I've said. Quote, One of the biggest levelers available in the fight against fraud and wider financial crime is prevention. Prevention is reinforced through working with industry and partners to strengthen the wider system to reduce and design out the risk of harm where possible and through initiatives to inform and educate the public. Since April 2022, 
we've run six ScamSmart campaigns. In 2022, our ScamSmart campaigns guided 11% more consumers to our warning list than in 2021. Our 2023 loan fee fraud campaign continues and has generated over 200 pieces of national and regional media coverage as we try to inform and educate the public to prevent them from becoming victims. It's essential that consumers are supported and educated on how to spot the signs of a fraud. Amen to that. I've linked the report in the podcast description. And finally this week on other financial crime news, the government has announced the launch of an economic crime survey. That's the UK government has announced the launch of an economic crime survey to be undertaken between February and June 2024. Surveying businesses, quotes, to learn more about whether they are they have experienced economic crime and the approaches they take to tackle it. The research will inform government policy on economic crime and how the government works with business, businesses to mitigate associated risks. Business uh, Businesses have been selected at random, apparently, from the Market Location Business Database, and a senior person from within the business will be engaged to take part in the survey. That person is likely to be someone with knowledge, experience or responsibility for finance, legal or compliance matters. Linked to the press release, though it is a bit thin on detail. I've pretty much given you everything that I, everything that's relevant in it. But if you want to read the press release in all its glory, it's in the podcast description. Now, we end this week's roundup of financial crime week, uh, financial crime news, with our usual look at cyber attack news. And we start with more attacks on public administration, as I've said before, attacks on public administration or public bodies tends to be easier. They tend to be slightly low-hanging fruit because they are under financial constraints. And protection against cyber attack is not terribly high on the budget spend. But anyway, in the US, the state of Pennsylvania's online courts portal has been hit with a distributed denial of service or DDoS attack, leaving some parts of the public database used to access civil and criminal schedules offline. It was said to be limited by Monday of this week uh, after the cyber attack. So it's seemingly under control, although I understand from reading later in the week that it was still offline. Some services were still offline. In Iceland, the University of Reykjavik has been the subject of a cyber attack, which is believed to have been carried out by the Russian Akira hacking group. It's understood that only a small amount of data may have been compromised, but it's still early days with that and more is likely to come out. Now, I did give a wry smile to this, AnyDesk, the remote desktop software popular with legitimate service providers and sadly also with scammers, although they've really gone hard against scammers recently. Um, It's announced that it's been hit by a cyber attack affecting its production systems. Uh, It is said that AnyDesk took immediate action to uh, respond to the attack and that the threat is no longer there. So that's good. And finally, in this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, a couple of couple of decent stories, a couple of kind of weighty ones. One is a COVID-19 story, which for once isn't linked to fraud, and it comes from the World Health Organization, or WHO, which has published a report on the threat posed by a cyber attack on healthcare during the pandemic. As the press release accompanying the report provides, During the COVID-19 pandemic, 
health information technology infrastructure was increasingly targeted by cyber attacks, at times hindering hospitals from delivering timely care when it was needed most. To restore IT systems and retrieve stolen data, healthcare facilities paid substantial ransoms. These attacks prompted law enforcement agencies to issue warnings about the threat of cyber attacks to the health sector. Health systems globally have turned to digital solutions to enhance the clinical quality and the cost efficiency of their services. This has created digital dependence, which has advanced, sometimes without careful consideration of new risks and appropriate investment in cyber structure or cybersecurity. Sensitive information held by health services, coupled with inadequate security, makes healthcare infrastructure a primary target for cyber criminals. To address the growing digital risk to healthcare, it's important to enhance cyber maturity. Cyber security maturity is an organization's level of readiness to defend itself and its digital assets against cyber attacks. This involves investing in people, processes and technology, including through cyber awareness training and development of incident response plans to be rehearsed by staff in anticipation of a cyber attack. It's critical to increase communication and collaboration with law enforcement agencies, governmental agencies, private sector and non-governmental organisations. These entities can provide alerts and warnings about ongoing cyber attacks. It's actually quite a good read, so therefore I've linked it, both the press release and the report, in the podcast description. Now, it's interesting that that report came out from the World Health Organization because a story on compromised health systems came out of France this week, where the data of half of French nationals has apparently been compromised in a cyber attack on two companies, Via Medis and Almeris. These companies provide services to medical insurance companies in France. It seems that Via Medis was hacked by phishing, allowing access to user logins and passwords, while Almeris said hackers had accessed a portal typically used by health professionals. An investigation is underway. In the UK, and finally, final story this week, and you would get there in the end. In the UK, the National Cyber Security Centre has published a blog post highlighting the fact that QR codes may not be as safe as perceived. The increase of or the increased use of QR codes in phishing emails, which is called quishing, apparently. So we've got smishing, phishing, and now quishing. It's worthy of warning, especially because caution from email users means they're more likely than not to regard QR codes as less suspicious because we've all been told not to click on links, we've all been told to be wary of attachments, but a QR code is friendly. Apparently. The link to the blog post is in the podcast description. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll hear from me again, all being well, next week with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>